Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. This is Odette Netzer, co-author of Decisions Over Decimals, Striking the Balance Between Intuition and Information. And you are listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, where each week I publish an interview with the author of a new marketing or sales book, and which has been named by Forbes and LinkedIn, amongst others, as one of the top marketing podcasts. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable in this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com. And since I get to read every book featured on the show, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or any other resource I know of for whatever challenge you're facing, send me a LinkedIn connection in with a message that you're a listener, and I will do my best to get you pointed in the right direction. My name again is Douglas Burdett. All right, let's get on with the show. Today, we welcome Dr. Oded Netzer to talk about the book he has co-authored with Christopher Frank and Paul Magnoni, Decisions Over Decimals, Striking the Balance Between Intuition and Information, published by Wiley. Oded Netzer is the Vice Dean for Research and the Arthur J. Sandberg Professor of Business at Columbia Business School, an affiliate of the Columbia Data Science Institute, and he's an Amazon scholar. He is a world-renowned expert in data-driven decision-making and extracting meaningful insights from data. He holds a PhD in business and a master's degree in statistics from Stanford University. And interesting fact, he's originally from Israel. Professor Netzer, congratulations on Decisions Over Decimals, and welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast. Thank you, Douglas, and love the, the sound effects. <laughs> right. So, you have degrees from Stanford, and longtime listeners to the Marketing Book Podcast will know that for some unpredictable reason, there have been more authors on this podcast with Stanford degrees than any other school, by an order of magnitude. And I don't know, maybe when you applied there, did they ask, will you write a marketing or sales book uh, if you graduate? I think it's this wonderful education at, at Stanford that uh, brings you toward this. Uh, but I really loved my time at Stanford, so I'm not surprised that um, uh, people coming out of Stanford are eventually being creative and see the light in marketing. I definitely saw the light in marketing. Oh, great. So I'm just curious, did you ever have the occasion to meet Arthur Sandberg before he passed away in 2020? I did. I did uh, get a chance to meet him uh, before he passed away. He's also, of, of course, coming from the area of marketing, right? So uh, very honored to be um, for my chair to be named uh, after him. But I, I did get a chance to meet him and and later uh, also the family uh, oh. when I received the chair. I did receive the chair actually about a um, half a year after he passed away. Oh, wow. Interesting. And he had a Stanford degree as well, so... <laughs> It just it just keeps building. So there you go. Yeah. Yeah. 
It's all of the sun in California that uh, aligns with the light on marketing. Yes, maybe that's it. Maybe that's it. So there was a book on the show a few years ago, which was one of the greatest books ever. And uh, it was called, it was by Sarah Cooper, and it's called 100 Tricks to Appear Smart in Meetings, How to Get By Without Even Trying. Now, it's actually a kind of a comedy book, uh, but it was for a special April Fool's edition. But it was a very funny book because she she had been an engineer at Google and Yahoo, and she wrote down all these really stupid things people would say in meetings, but people thought that they sounded smart. And it was, anyway, very, very funny. This book, your book, will show people how not to appear smart in meetings, but actually be smart in meetings. So there's a, a certain symmetry here. So... Now, I I do want to say a word to any of your current or future students. I'm pleased to announce that any of Dr. Netzer's students who listen to the Marketing Book Podcast will receive significant extra credit on their final grade. Dr. Netzer, thank you very much for your uh, generosity. That's great. So, And also, let me know if you need any Marketing Book Podcast bookmarks or stickers for those uh, students that come up and tell you they they heard you on the show. To get an excellent mark, yes, yes. Uh, on, on, on reading the book and, and receiving extra credit, of course. Uh, thanks to you, Douglas. Yeah. <laughs> okay, there you go. So on a more serious note, in the acknowledgments, you know, when you're the host of the Marketing Book Podcast, you read every word in the book. And in the acknowledgments, you mentioned that your father had passed away years ago, but that you consulted with him many times while writing this book. Tell us about that. Yeah. Um, so my father passed away um, 15 years ago. Uh, but um, in the book, we talk a lot about quantitative intuition, about this ability to think about numbers, but not necessarily from the, you know, I've been trained to be top of my class in math, uh, but rather more from having, uh, combining them with judgment. And uh, my father was one of the most curious people I I I've known, um, maybe, maybe the most curious person actually I've known. Uh, and one of the, the lessons we talked about quantitative intuition, one of the key lessons is uh, be inquisitive, ask questions. And um, this is a skill that I've learned from, from my father. And what happened is I was writing the book, I would uh, suddenly kind of think, oh, should I write something that way or the other examples I should use? And I would simply ask myself, what would he say? And it felt as if I'm having a conversation with him as I was writing the book, even though, of course, I could not have a direct conversation with him. Uh, But he was actually very instrumental in writing the book by me uh, uh, thinking what would he say, what what questions would he ask, uh, which really, uh, truly helped me a lot. So thank you for um, noting this, actually, in the acknowledgements. And maybe one point towards your your, uh, introduction around the bad meetings. or how to appear smart in meetings. Really <laughs> one of the uh, reasons why we wrote the book, Paul Magnone, one of my co-authors, he always says that the reason why he decided to write this book uh, was because he was sick of having bad meetings. Oh. Uh, because we want better meetings. Yes. And that's really one of the reasons why we, we started this journey. Oh, interesting. You know, in my opinion, you've snuck in a very good psychology book into your book. <laughs> it's quite, it's not a book about how to set up pivot tables or do regression analysis. It, it's very much, uh, it's much more human than I think people might uh, initially think when they first see the book on the bookshelf in the store. And we'll talk about all that. Right, which is again, one of the reasons why we call it decisions over decimals, yes, right? Yes. I mean, the decimals are really the being over by 
intuition, judgment, psychology, and decision-making. Yes. Well, it's also a great book for anyone who struggles with decisions. And over the years, I've worked with folks or had clients who just really struggle with decisions, and decision-making is a big part of, of business. What I'm thinking, though, uh, additionally, is that there are probably some listeners who would like to send a copy of your book anonymously <laughs> to some colleagues or their management who struggle with making sound uh, data-informed decisions. So I'm sure they can do that without uh, revealing who's, who's sending it to them. They can always blame me. Oh, okay. Yeah, sure. Well, actually, I've had a couple other books uh, on the show over the years where the author actually set up a program. There was one book by Martin Lindstrom called The Ministry of Common Sense, and I was I read the book, and it had to do with how common sense is being surgically removed <laughs> from the brain of a lot of companies, which makes for a terrible customer experience. And it's a very funny book. And right. as I was interviewing, I said, you know, this would be a great book to send to somebody I maybe I work for or my CEO, but I wouldn't want them to know I'm sending it. And he said, oh, Douglas, I have a whole program. <laughs> you buy two books, I will send one anonymously to your CEO. So there you go. So you are what you describe as a recovering engineer. And in the preface, you write that if you were to describe me in one word, it would be nerd. If you want to use two words, it would be data nerd. <laughs> you you go on to write that when you were getting your advanced degrees at Stanford, where you would go to cocktail parties, of course, it would uh, take you a good 15 minutes to explain your area of specialization. And then you write, needless to say, the data nerd wasn't the life of the party. Well, Dr. Netzer, given how interested the listeners are in this topic, you are the life of this party, okay? So even if this is the only time, and I, I hope that listeners will reach out to you and thank you for being a guest on the show and congratulate you um, on your book. So you're at home with, uh, with, with like-minded folks here. Yeah, you know, the, the um, chief data officer at, a Google, at a Google, um Halvarian, said at some point, this was, I think, good good. Uh, 12, 13 years ago, when data science started to become a household word, uh, which also helped me describe what I'm doing uh, after struggling in these cocktail parties. Um, Hal Varian said that the the data scientist is now the sexiest job in the world. Um, <laughs> so I don't know if it is the sexiest job in the world, but uh, it definitely gets much more, way less nerdier than it used to be when I did my PhD at Stanford. It's at least now acknowledged as a profession. Helvarian, who managed a lot of these data scientists, at least uh, like to call it the sexiest job in the world. Uh, <laughs> well, good. All right. Well, now I'm going to quote from uh, two sections of the preface to give listeners a sense of what's ahead in our conversation here. And this is, uh, the first part is from page uh, 13 in the preface. You're right. What distinguishes a person who makes smart, confident, data-driven decisions? It is not exceptional analytic skills. Instead, successful decision makers balance data, experience, and intuition. They quickly sort through information, apply judgment, and are fierce interrogators of data to cultivate sharp insights. They know there is more to decision making than just the data. They resist being intoxicated by information. Instead, they apply first-order principles to understand what the decision really is, why it must be taken, and to what end. They then seek the relevant data to help make that decision. In short, they make informed decisions with incomplete information. This approach to fast decision-making taps into a different set of skills requiring a change in mindset by combining information and intuition. We call this approach quantitative intuition, QI. And then lower down that page, you write, QI emphasizes the need to break the allure 
that an abundance of data is a crystal ball to eliminate all uncertainty and lead to perfect decisions. And then jumping over to page 17 of the preface, there are many terrific books on decision-making. We are striving to add to the pantheon of knowledge by discussing how to strike a balance between data intelligence and human judgment. This book is written to share practical techniques to make smarter decisions. You do not need to have gone to math camp to read this book, but you will acquire the necessary counterpart to IQ, QI. This book teaches you that to be an effective decision-maker, you should rely on data, but at the same time, you must resist being intoxicated by information. Decisions over decimals underscores how the process of decision-making can be streamlined. This book is intended as a career tool, not a single-use one. Readers should be able to come back repeatedly as they progress through their careers, shifting upwards and sideways. It's not industry or geography-specific, and the value of QI can extend well beyond the confines of the corporate world. QI aims to raise awareness of the power of thinking beyond big data without neglecting it and chasing the perfect decision while appreciating that such a thing can never really exist. Now, finally, I want to jump over to page 20 and read this very short excerpt and ask you to uh, elaborate. You write, quantitative analysis is valued because it tends to be considered unambiguous. Numbers are a universal language that everyone speaks more or less uniformly. Humans tend not only to be terrified of failure, but also of the unknown. So if we're given data that can be feasibly interpreted as solid, we tend to jump to two conclusions. First, that it will save us from failure. And second, that it will provide certainty. And you go on to write that both are categorically wrong. Explain. Yeah, and, and thank you for um, reading the, these quotes from the book. Um, you know, why did we go on to write this book, right? I already mentioned one reason that Paul mentions, which is just we are sick of having bad meetings. But the two other reasons were our observations um, at this point, uh, teaching thousands, executives and executives to be a Chris, Paul, and I uh, have been teaching at Columbia Business School uh, executive education classes as well as executive MBA uh, classes for the last uh, seven years around this topic of quantitative intuition and uh, our experience from the front line of business at um, at Amazon, at American Express, at Google, uh, previously Microsoft, Deloitte, uh, IBM, startups. And uh, we have observed two myths uh, that, that, that uh, we wanted to dismiss. Uh, the first myth is something you've alluded to in, in, in the quotes that you've read, that the, this uh, myth of the certainty myth, uh, particularly myth that became worse post-2010 and the emergence of big data, capital B, capital D, you know, big data came in, and then there was this belief that finally, finally we'll get to the nirvana of decision-making. Finally, we'll get to this point where we'll have so much data that all we need is to look at the data and make a certain decision. And by now we realize, of course, that this is a myth, that data are never perfect, decisions are never perfect, data never tells you the entire truth, that eventually we still need to pour judgment into the decision, that we are still responsible for the uh, 
good and bad decisions we are making. We cannot blame data for the bad decisions that we are making. So we truly still need to make decisions with uncertainty. This uncertainty never disappeared and will never disappear. No matter how much AI and data we are going to bring, we still are going to live in an uncertain uh, world. So that's the first myth. The myth, the myth of, of uh, what we call the certainty myth. The second myth has to do with this um, belief, and again, I've seen it over and over again, both on the front line of businesses and definitely within the classroom, where leaders are afraid of making decisions with data because they, they say, well, I wasn't top of my class in math. I'm not an Excel whiz. I don't know what to do with these numbers, but I know few people they do. They should be the ones dealing with it. And here I have good news and bad news to share. I'll start with the bad news. The bad news is you don't make a choice anymore whether you make decisions with data. We all need to make decisions with data. Whether you were top of a class in math or whether you weren't, you do need to make decisions with data. Um, it's, it's simply the reality of our life today. The, the good news is you don't need to, be, to have been top of a class in math to make decisions with data. Um, maybe lucky for us, QI, quantitative intuition, is the opposite of IQ. You don't need a high math IQ. There are skills needed. We call these skills quantitative intuition, uh, but they don't involve real knowing math or, or be an expert in math. They involve uh, things like asking questions, things like uh, having context and interrogating data from a context and synthesizing the information to, uh, to make decisions. Math is rarely um, an important ingredient of any of these. Yes, there's not a I don't believe a single math equation <laughs> in the book. And before we go much further, though, I need to ask a question, or we need to get one thing out of the way. And I know that my question is going to sound like, what is love? But what is intuition? I think it probably means something different to everyone. Right. And 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 it's a great question. <laughs> um, so intuition sounds to be something very primal, right? It's, it's something that, that you even could argue we either have or you don't have, right? Intuition is a, is a, a mix of a, a combination of the, the brain and the stomach. Um, and, you know, I was, uh, I was talking about quantitative intuition to a group of physicians and uh, one of them kind of raises their hand and say, Professor, you know that nothing comes from the stomach, right? I say, yeah, yeah, yeah. Figuratively speaking, the gut and the brain, right? Um, intuition is also thinking in parallel. It's not something very sequential. Uh, the ability to think in parallel. And, you know, when I teach um, in our, as I mentioned, the data nerd, right? Teaching the nerds, teaching the, the what I like to call the nerds that like to sit in rooms with no windows and really big computers, the data scientists. Uh, I teach them to be very methodical and sequential. But but as leaders, we don't have the luxury of being sequential. Things land at our desks whenever they land. And not only that, we actually enjoy benefit from connecting dots, from seeing one thing from one direction and another from another direction. And, and in a parallel way, combine information. These are ingredients for, for intuition, right? Um, now, one of the questions we are being asked is, is, can you teach intuition? Meaning, isn't intuition something you're either born with or not, right? We know you can teach the quantitative skills. We've been taught quantitative skills since we were in kindergarten. Um, and all the way through, you know, math and algebra and calculus and whatever we've been um, thrown at. Um, the theory of learning suggests that there are two dimensions to learning. Consciousness and competence. At the lower, lowest level of learning, we are so clueless that we are unconsciously incompetent. We don't even know what we don't know. And um, 
Then we, we move to the second st stage of learning, in which we are uh, consciously incompetent. <laughs> we still don't know it, but we are at least conscious about what we uh, what what we uh, um, what we don't know, right? And mm -hmm. um, you know, for example, we tune in into the marketing book podcast, and I, we hear, oh, quantitative intuition. I have no clue what it is. It sounds interesting, but. I don't know what it is, right? Right. Hopefully, you know, half an hour into the podcast, now you're moving to um, the third stage of uh, of learning, where you are becoming um, consciously competent. Meaning, I know what it is, I'm, but it requires a lot of effort. I need to do. I haven't tried it at work yet. I don't know if it worked. I mean, meaning, yeah. Um, Odette and Douglas tells me it worked, but I don't know. I haven't tried it. Um, Think about the first few days of driving, the first few days of riding your bike. We were never born learning how to ride a bike. We learn it and it's very hard. At the highest level of learning, we get to intuition, we get to nirvana, we get to um, habit, second nature. We become unconsciously competent. We do something and we don't even need to think about it. It's, it's, we do it as if it, we, were, we were born with it. Again, think about riding a bike or driving a car if you've been driving it for a while. None of us was born learning how to do it, but by, by repeatedly doing it, we get to this intuition. So um, one can learn intuition by reapplying skills that we are learning. In our case, we call it the quantitative intuition skills, but it's really a combination of what your brain tells you and what your stomach tells you and um, some parallel view of, of a situation. So bringing in context to the data, for example, that you're seeing. Right. So for those listeners who think, uh, you know, intuition is something you're born with, uh, like creativity, which is also a myth. <laughs> it's not true. It's not true. You can, you can actually develop it. Hey there, I want to take a quick break in my conversation with Dr. Netzer to introduce you to one of your fellow marketing book podcast listeners. Now, she didn't want to do this, but I insisted. Her name is Zora Sinnott. Hi, Zora. Thanks for being such a good sport. Hi, Doug. Uh, as a longtime listener to your show, this is kind of an out-of-body experience for me. Uh, so I, I, I hope I'm up to the task. Yes, well, Zora, it's going to be fine. This is just going to take a minute. So, so, folks, Zora, like many marketing book podcast listeners, is a member of Overachievers Anonymous. Okay, She's a graduate of Northwestern University, go Wildcats, and has an MBA from the University of Chicago. And when you see her LinkedIn profile picture, which I will include a link to on this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com, you'll know she's a Marketing Book Podcast listener, if you know what I mean. Anyway, Zora's the Chief Commercial Officer at Verisk Marketing Solutions, which is part of a multinational data analytics firm uh, listed on the NASDAQ. And in a moment of rather questionable professional judgment, Zora and her team invited me to be the MC for their upcoming Consumer Insights and Experience Summit in Chicago on September 18th and 19th. Now, this is not a large event, and this is not the first time they've done it, and registrations are apparently doing really well, but I still wanted to help spread the word. Uh, what I'm really saying is that when it does sell out, I want to take full credit for it. Seriously, there, there might be like a bottle of wine in it for me or something. Anyway, Zora, thank you for inviting me to be part of the event. And just to be clear, it is now too late for all of you to back out of having me there. So how would you describe this event to civilians? And when I say civilians, I mean the management who tend to pay for their executives to attend the event. 
Yeah, and I would never dream of of backing out at this point, Doug. Uh, the event is is one for marketing leaders uh, and industry executives who need to sort of future-proof their businesses through deeper, uh, data-driven understanding of their consumer, finding the right person at the right place at the right time. And as listeners of the show probably know, uh, understanding customers is a frequent topic on your podcast at least based on the t- all the times I hear the recording of Can You Dig It, uh, the summit zeroes in on... You see, on, folks, she on, really is a listener. I am. I'm, I'm faithful. Uh, the summit zeroes in really on, on how companies are dealing with the quickly changing environment and the complexity around consumer data, privacy, and personalization. So it's going to be at, at in the Fulton Market District at Convene in downtown Chicago. Uh, it's basically a day and a half of learning, networking, and entertainment. Uh, related to the entertainment, we're going to have some hilarious performances from from Second City, the the improv comedy company based here in Chicago as well. What kind of because I haven't been to it? How what kind of executives typically attend? So if somebody goes to it. What kind of folks are they going to run into? Yeah, so uh, our, our customers, for the most part, which are who are marketing leaders, typically uh, operating in high considered purchase categories like insurance or other financial services uh, industries, where you are engaging with a consumer uh, consistently over a, an extended purchasing or consideration process. Um, but really, marketing leaders who are managing any significant amount of consumer data will find a lot of value in the show. Uh, we also work with product developers of consumer identity and advertising technology solutions uh, and experts in in data privacy and compliance will will be on stage as well okay so Zora I, I need you to be honest because you're here with your fellow listeners if if this event sells out and a marketing book podcast listener reaches out to you will you be able to do a solid for one of your fellow listeners and, and add them to the list Absolutely. But hurry up because this is an intimate event. <laughs> so tickets are limited, but I encourage everyone here, particularly our B2C uh, marketers in the audience to consider attending this year or in the future. And listeners of the Marketing Book Podcast can register for $100 off uh, with a promo code that I came up with. It's it's VIP Doug 100 in honor of our favorite Marketing Book Podcast host, Mr. Douglas Burdett. Stop it. Um, yeah. And if we've, if we've sold out the event uh, by the time the episode airs, find me on LinkedIn. I'll get you in. VIP Doug 100. Now, mm-hmm. while you were talking, I went ahead and checked. That's too long for me to use as a personalized <laughs> license plate, but I think that would make a great tattoo. And I don't have any tattoos because I'd never been able to figure out what, what to have. So VIP Doug 100. You heard it here first. Yeah. Thank you for putting the idea. <laughs> so anyway, all right, folks, if you want to learn more about the event, I'll include a link to it on this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com. Zora, I'll see you in Chicago. Oh, looking forward to it, Doug. Thanks a lot. All right, let's get back to my conversation with Dr. Netzer. So as part of your executive education programs at Columbia, as well as in private workshops with Fortune 500 companies, you ask executives to identify the aspect of decision-making they think represents the biggest gap in their organizations when it comes to making smarter data-driven decisions. And what are the biggest gaps that you find when you ask that question? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a really interesting question that at this point we asked uh, um, uh, around a thousand uh, executives uh, this question. We asked them, where do you see the biggest gap? And and, and the steps that, or the, 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 the close-ended questions where we give them 
five possible answers. Is it more in we go on these journeys and we don't define the problem, meaning we, we don't spend enough time on defining the problem? Um, is it that the gap is we do define the problem, but we we don't have the data. We don't have the right data. We don't have enough data. Is it that we, we define the problem, we get the data, but the problem really is in... Uh, the analysis, meaning I, I'm lacking these nerds that like to sit in rooms with no windows and really be computers. I don't have, only had a data nerd, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I don't have enough of, enough data nerds. Right. You know, as a data nerd, I'm allowed I'm allowed to say it, right? Right. Um, is it more in? I do get the I define the problem. I have the data. I crunch the numbers. My real problem is parallel analysis i don't see the forest for the trees i don't yeah. get insights i mm-hmm. analyze data but there are very little in, very little insight very few insights or is it that even we do all of that but nothing gets ever done nothing gets ever converted into actions right no decisions are made correct mm-hmm. and you can think about these five steps that i decide, that i described as step 1 problem and steps 4 and 5 insights and 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 actions are more of the i um, aspects of things and data and data analysis are more of the Q, the quantitative aspects of things. Uh, if you think about kind of the intuition versus the quantitative. Mm-hmm. And what we find repeatedly as we are asking this question is that there is kind of a U-shape of the answers. People tell us, you know, our problem is not so much in the Q, not so much in I don't have data or I don't have the skills that the, th- the three-letter acronyms uh, shiniest anal- analysis tool. <laughs> right. That uh, made me laugh when I saw that in the book. What I'm really missing is we don't spend enough time with the problem and nothing gets ever done, right? We don't we don't make decisions, um, which truly doesn't sit in the, the data analyst's uh, um, desk. It doesn't sit with the data scientists. It sits with us, with the leaders, mm-hmm. right? Uh, it's the I problem, not necessarily the Q problem, the intuition, the judgment, the leadership problem, not so much the, the, the uh, quantitative problem. And... To be honest, when we asked this question, you know, good seven years ago, when big data was still in its, in its infancy, we would find more responses on the, I don't have enough data. Today, our problem is not lack of, of information, but the judgment to use it. Well, so, or too and, much data. Or too much data. And how do I sift through all of this fire hose, right, that is pointed at me? Yes. Um, so really what we need is more is better judgment. And, and that's what led us again to this quantitative intuition and, and, and believing that, you know, it sounds like an oxymoron, quantitative and intuition, right? Right brain, left brain. There are people who are really quantitative and people who are really intuitive. No, it's not about a, a dichotomous Q people and I people, right? It's really more about how do we combine the two in order to make a better decision? We don't believe it's a it's an innate type of a, a dichotomy. In order to make good decisions, we truly need to combine the the defining problem, looking for for actionable insights with the data analysis, and we need to guide the data analyst with what is the problem that. Uh, we are trying to solve. Yes, executives don't have the luxury of one or the other. Uh, they have to do, they have to have both. And you're right, across hundreds of business executives we surveyed, it became very clear that leaders find a much bigger gap in the intuition steps than in the quantitative steps. Interesting. Let me just jump to another section here, which I found very interesting. And I've, I've seen this uh, in some other books as well, which is just fascinating. You write that management and business writers love reciting stories of advice that were thought of as canny at the time of its delivery, but later turned out to be wildly misguided. American astronomer 
Clifford Stoll is regularly mocked for a 1995 article he penned for Newsweek calling the internet a, quote, trendy and oversold community, end quote. We relish that IBM chairman Thomas Watson famously forecasted that the world would be able to accommodate maybe five computers. And even Albert Einstein's 1932 observation that there's not the slightest indication that nuclear energy will ever be obtainable is still regularly met with chuckles of incredulity. So, Dr. Netzer, why do such intelligent and experienced individuals make such erroneous predictions? Yeah, and, and that, that has to do with uh, what is known, and there are, there are multiple books about this topic, right? Biases in decision-making. Mm-hmm. Um, what there was a Nobel Prize uh, given given towards the identification of many of these biases to Daniel Kahneman and, and uh, Amos Tversky, who did not receive the prize, but was the co-author. He just passed away before um, Daniel Kahneman received the prize, the prize for it. Uh, as humans, we suffer from biases, and managers, leaders are subset of the population of humans and suffer from similar and sometimes even more extreme biases. To give you an example, one of the most common biases is is confirmation bias, right? We tend to look for data that supports our our um our our predefined uh, conclusions. Another bias that I think is is um is very common and particularly among among leaders is overconfidence. Yes. We tend to be overconfident about the things we don't know. And and you can imagine how this is a, a, a recipe for disaster, right? And I was because delighted to see a story when you talked about overconfidence about Silicon Valley. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, um, Not that there's overconfidence in Silicon Valley. One could write a whole book about, about overconfidence in Silicon Valley, right? Yeah. Uh, um, uh, about entrepreneurs being overconfident about about their ideas and and um, and entrepreneurial uh, um, companies. We tend to be overconfident about things we are uh, we don't know, and and because we are overconfident about things we don't know, we 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 rely overly rely on on the eye, on the intuition, mm-hmm. and don't seek the help of the cue, of the of the data. On the other hand, there is a bunch of biases that arise from when we are overly relying on data, right? For example, again, confirmation bias, where we st- we look only for data that supports uh, our intuition or situations where um, we have illusion of certainty because you give me three digits after the decimal and I'm like, oh, that's got to be accurate. Well, it's projection for five years from now. How can it be accurate? Why do you give me three digits after the decimal? Um, so it's these biases that steer us wrong and... Um, Part of what you're trying to do with quantitative intuition is combining data with intuition. I mean, within the group of, of authors, Paul, uh, Chris, and myself, we have two engineers and two data scientists, um, two recovering engineers and two still existing data scientists, uh, possibly recovering. Right, and your colleague, and, your, your co-authors uh, work for American Express and Google. And Google, yes. Mm-hmm. So clearly very quantitative companies. So by no means, I want... The, the listeners or the readers of the book to take away don't rely on data. You should look at the data, but sh- but you should combine the data with your intuition. You, you should contrast the data with your intuition. And that's that's part of what kills biases. When you are looking at your intuition and then contrast it with the data and say, Am I, do I find something different? And if you do, that's exactly the place where you should be looking deeper into it. In fact, 
one of the most one of the key learnings from the book is a deceptively simple question that we recommend to ask and this question is tell me what surprised you this notion of surprise you asked me before can you define intuition in fact intuition is surprise or quantitative intuition at least is surprise because what is a surprise surprise is what happens when intuition doesn't match the incoming information and focusing on these moments where you say the data the information incoming information doesn't match my my intuition this is exactly the places where we find interesting things we find either mistakes or something that are su- they're super interesting either way you want to spend your time on it now how do statisticians call these surprises they call them outliers what do they do with outliers throw them out <laughs> they throw them out they put them in the appendix and <laughs> uh, we recommend actually pay attention to these outliers. That's where really the interesting uh, things happen. Again, either mistakes or uh, or really interesting findings focus on these situations where intuition doesn't match your your um, the the information. That's again helps killing biases because you may find out that I had a pre a perceived notion of something, but now the data tell me something different. Either I'm wrong when the data is wrong. Let's collect more data and figure out what's going on here. Uh, so really, uh, um, I, would, I want to uh, emphasize this advice of ask what surprised you? What surprised you in the data? What surprised you in the analysis? What surprised you in the information that you're uh, currently looking at? Yes, and we'll talk a little bit more about that in, in just a moment. I found the section on all the biases a great uh, reminder or review of what to, to watch out for with yourself and, and with others. There's several in there that uh, we didn't even have time to talk about. One of them is um, that you didn't mention was uh, optimism bias, availability bias, selective attention, anchoring bias, which is also uh, you see quite a bit in sales, uh, con- right. conservatism bias. It's not a political thing. And information bias, so, so uh, fascinating. And I was reminded, uh, like your point about <laughs> don't ignore the data – one of the HubSpot co-founders, uh, Brian Halligan, I remember him once saying that they started meetings at that company by somebody saying, let's start with the numbers. <laughs> like before we run off and you know, go in several different directions, let's, let's anchor the meeting with, with the numbers. I thought that was very, uh, very interesting. So in a callback to Sarah Cooper and her book, 100 Tricks to Appear Smart in Meetings, on page 10... You write that the smartest person in the room is not the one with an answer, but the person asking the best questions. And on page three, you write that while we are wired from a young age to ask questions, we are rarely taught to develop the skill of questioning effectively. Tell us about precision questioning and precision answering, PQ and PA. Yeah, um, so... Within quantitative intuition, we actually describe three pillars, uh, three uh, main pillars and three sets of skills that we uh, discuss. The first one is exactly the one that you mentioned, Douglas, precision questioning. The second one has to do more with um, contextual analysis, how do we interrogate data, and the third one has to do with synthesis. But truly, the first one and arguably the most important one is learning how to ask good questions. Uh, You know, Albert Einstein said once that it's not that he's smart, it's just that he spends more time with the question. Um, we tend to f- to jump straight into solution mode. We tend to uh, uh, jump straight into, oh, let's look at the data. Let's see if there is something interesting there. 
we don't spend enough time thinking through what is it truly that we are trying to solve here? What is the problem that we are trying to solve? And um, we tend to appreciate answers more than, than questions. In fact, we believe that, that we do the interview, uh, job interviews, all wrong. If you believe me, believe us uh, in the book that asking good questions is a really good skills, skill for, for, for leaders, why aren't we testing this when we <laughs> interviewing people? In right. fact, what we do is exactly the opposite. The interviewer mm-hmm. asks questions and we hope that the job candidate would give us good answers, right? Mm-hmm. And I don't mean questions like, you know, tell me about this, the, the uh, culture in the company. This is the, you don't need to think about this question. I mean questions more along the lines of maybe what some of the consulting companies do when they interview people, where I give you a scenario and I don't ask you to solve the scenario. I want to see what questions you ask. Mm-hmm. I want to see what you what do you want to know? What is it that you wish you knew in order to provide here a solution? And I think I actually think we should be reversing interviews on their head and, and focusing interview much more on can you ask good questions? And, and how do you interrogate data by asking good questions? And, and one example of that is what surprised you? It's, it's one question that we, we highlight as a, as a very important question. When someone comes to me with data, maybe going back to your example of starting a meeting with, let's talk about the data. I would even start the, the meeting with, tell me one or two surprises that you've seen in the data. Yes, which is uh, great because, and we'll talk about this in a minute, but people tend to want to parade the knowledge and demonstrate that they did a lot of work, and they're basically just providing information rather than uh, synthesis, but we'll get to that. Right. You're informing me, and you're not actually telling me about the really interesting aspects of things. It's amazing how this single question cuts straight to the chase, uh, to the the interesting uh, aspects of the the information. But back to your question about... um, about precision questioning, uh, um, we talk in the book about this um, uh, story from Alice in Wonderland, where um, you know Alice walks in the forest and she gets to a fork in the forest, and she she meet, she sees the Cheshire Cat on the on the on the tree, and one of the branches on the tree, and she asks the cat, she says, "Which way should I go?" And the cat says, "Well, it depends where you want to go." Right, and Alice says, "Well, I don't really care." And the cat says, "Well, then it doesn't matter." But Alice said, "No, no, no, no." But I want to make sure I get somewhere eventually. And the cat says, "Well, just walk long enough, you'll get somewhere." Unfortunately, with uh, many of data-driven uh, um, journeys, this is exactly what happens, right? And now replace Alice with the analyst, and we send the analyst on the forest of data. They go and they get to tons of forks in the in the in the in the forest of data lacking any guidance from us, meaning we go to the analyst, we say, oh, we've been collecting this data forever. Can you see if there is anything interesting in it? Lacking any guidance from us, they'll take right or left in the forks in, uh, in, in the data, walk long enough, meaning crunch enough numbers, that's what they're paid to do, uh, and eventually they'll find something. <laughs> Torture data long enough, it will confess to anything. The chances that what they'll find will be relevant to anything that we need, to anything actionable, is unfortunately close to zero. If we haven't guide them on what is the decision that we're trying to make? What is the problem that we're trying to solve? So um, for me, this is the, the biggest no-no in data-driven journeys is that we expect the data to provide both the questions and the answers. Expect the analysts to provide both the questions and the answers. Right. It is on your desk, the leader, 
to, to think through the question. Tell me what is the problem you're trying to solve? What is the decision you're trying to make? And then if you're lucky and you have the, the, the right data and you have a good analyst, maybe you'll get good answers to the, que- to the well-defined questions that you've uh, asked. But we have as leaders to, to um, focus on questions. As, we, as you mentioned, uh, we are trained to, we, we are really good at it when we are four-year-old, three-year-old. We ask a lot of questions. And then we feel it is inappropriate to do so at work. Um, we should retain this skill that we actually get, we were almost born with, right? This ability to ask a question, this curiosity mm-hmm. to ask questions. Yes, so this reminds me of a quote from Yogi Berra, the uh, baseball player, who said, if you don't know where you're going, you'll end up someplace else. Right. Just one other question. You talked about what surprised you, but... Dr. Netzer, help me understand what an open-ended question is. Yeah, I mean, I, I love that you started the question with help me understand. In fact, it's one of the questions we promote as enabling a, a discussion, right? So you see what I did there? I did. Uh, um, questions that, that, that are not being answered with yes or no. Questions that mm-hmm. are uh, like what surprised you is yet another open-ended question. I can say yes. I can answer yes to what surprised <laughs> you, right? Uh, um, I can't answer yes to help me understand, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's it, There are questions that push the conversa- conversation forward. Um, and, and, you know, when I'm, when I'm uh, thinking through uh, reversing the interview, the job interview, what I would expect from a good leader that I'm be- that I'm hiring is asking questions in the interview that push the, that push the conversation forward that allows us to uncover new areas as we are um, looking into in, into the, 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 the aspect. Another example that we talked about the, the, the book as a question, what is it that you wish you knew? We call mm-hmm. this I weeks, I wish I knew. Yes. Um, and another way of focusing on the problem, right? On, on what is the problem that we are trying to solve. Um, it's an enabling question. It's a question that is that is such a pleasure to ask because it's like a, a kid's in a, in a candy store, right? What is it that you wish you knew? Yes, and yes. Or another one is, have you considered? Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's not what do you need to know. It's not, is the data accurate? You know, that, this is a, not an open-ended question, right? Right. Uh, um, why do we see that or the other? I mean, not so much of a, a, um, an open-ended questions. Questions along the lines of... Um, what is it that you would like to know here, right? What is the decision that you're trying to to um, to solve, uh, or problem you're trying to solve, decisions you're trying to make? These are examples of open-ended questions that push a conversation forward. Yes, and on this podcast, I, last time I counted, I think I've had over 60 books specifically about sales. And everything we just talked about regarding questions applies to all the salespeople listening to this interview. It works on several levels. So you've mentioned Albert Einstein. I did too. At the beginning of chapter two, you have another quote from him. You started to touch on where he said, if I had an hour to solve a problem, I'd spend 55 minutes thinking about the problem and five minutes thinking about solutions. So in the book, you introduce this deceptively simple yet extremely powerful question that you just touched on. Explain IWIC. What do I wish I knew to make the best decision? Really powerful. Yeah, deceptively simple and, and yet extremely powerful. Um, it's actually, a, you can think about it as, as, as almost a framework in and of itself within the QI framework called IWIC. Um, and the idea there is as you're when you are early on in the, in the in this process, right? When you are 
um, trying to avoid the Alice in Wonderland story and you're actually trying to start with actually a good uh, question, right? What you want to do is you want to, you want to ask what is it that I wish I knew in order to make the decision or in order to solve the problem? And uh, you can direct this question to top leadership. You can direct this question uh, horizontally to people within your, your leadership level. You can direct this question um, maybe towards the data analyst as well, involve them in this question. And uh, there are kind of two steps to this process that we call iWeek, I wish I knew. The first step is very expensive. expensive what I mean expensive is not that, that it, it costs a lot, but but in the sense that the page takes any, anything, any iWeek, anything you wish you know, I'm going to put on the page. I'm not going to question your, your, your wishes. I'm just going to put them on the page. Um, to give you an example, and, and I think it's an example we use in the book, uh, when Chris Frank um, was at American Express, one of the questions came about, what do we do with millennials, right? Um, credit cards and millennials, they don't necessarily use credit cards the same way previous generation did. They did an iWeek session uh, um, came up with over 70 different things they wish they knew in order to, to, re, to understand how do we, what is the opportunity for us as American Express within, uh, um, within millennials. The next step is, uh, is where we start narrowing things down. In fact, what we're going to do then is we're going to put these, these 70 iWeeks, by the way, the first step is you're going to some of these iWeeks are going to be redundant because different people maybe wish for the same thing. Right. But now we're going to put them on a two-by-two. Two. The, the one dimension of the two-by-two two is do we already know it? Because you may ask me, Douglas, you know, I wish I knew something and someone else in the organization is going to say, you don't need to wish. We actually have a report <laughs> right. giving you exactly the answer. So part of the value of iWeek actually is that it helps closing information gaps. Yeah, and I wonder if people would say, gosh, how did I not know that? We knew that? It seems like that must come up a lot where uh, maybe a CEO says, I've been wondering about that. You already know the answer? Right. And part of the value of, of just listing these is that suddenly we realize what people know and what they don't know, right? Uh, because they seem to wish for stuff that, that, that is already known. The second dimension for it is, do we really need to know it for now in order to make <laughs> right. that decision? Yes. And now I, I can focus my attention only on the things that I don't know and I need to know. And that's often a much smaller subset of the long list of, of iWeeks. Yes, and I love it when you say, what do we not really need to know? I bet that, 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 that's a big uh, part of the 70 right there. Like, yeah, that's, that's nice to know, but we don't really need to know it right now. Yeah, and, and so often we spend time on on what I like to call cocktail party type of information. Mm -hmm. uh, at least the, the you know the, the, the for the person who was uncool in these cocktail parties, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, just information that is nice to have but is not really actionable. Uh, we should focus our attention on things that lead to decisions, right? Um, uh, we call this in the book. We talk about this backward approach to decision making. Yeah. Uh, Let's focus on things that help us make make decisions. Uh, if you want a, an example for that is, you know, um, think about a report, one of these reports that we all get, you know, on a daily, weekly, monthly basis with tons of numbers in them. Look at every number in this report. Do, do, do one, at least once, do something that we never do, which is looking at every single number. And then ask yourself the following question. If this number was half as low or twice as high as it is today, would I do anything differently? 
if the answer is no, us to never see this number again. Yes, yes, that was great. And there's a couple others on there, too, that were just phenomenal, including one which was, if, I, if I'm not mistaken, what would, be, what would happen if we were wildly successful? Yes. Yes, and, and I've, I've recently have seen this, right? In fact, I was in a meeting where we were talking about the digital future and, and, and the impact of AI, and someone in the meeting asked, they said, imagine I give you now $10 million to try and address this problem. What would you do, right? Let's remove the cons- this constraint. What would we do? Would you be able, to, how would you go about it? Now, now let's, let's reverse the situation of a constrained type of uh, environment, right? Uh, um, let's rever- revert things to decisions, right? And, and um, we, we, we are seeing so many numbers that we'll do nothing about, right? And, and, and we, we talk about it in the book, I think, but, but the, an example of a good dashboard is our car dashboard. Because we, we, we can't afford to spend too much time looking at this dashboard, right, at our car, mm-hmm. uh, uh, because we're driving, almost every number in car dashboard, at least the old ones, by the way, unfortunately, the new ones start to push a lot of unnecessary information. Right. And then people are still looking at their phones. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, um, and there are listeners right now who are driving. So folks, please get your eyes on the road. Thank you. Yeah, and focus only on the thing that these dashboards of the cars, right? They're actually pretty good. They tell yeah. you you're you're speeding. They may even beep. They tell you you need to 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 put in gas in the car. They tell you you need to go for a, maybe at an 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 oil replacement, or you need to fill in air in your tires. Almost everything being shown there is actionable. Let's make sure that a dashboard that works are much more like car dashboards as opposed to the way they currently are, which is pretty much re- speeding anything the engine is producing. Imagine your car dashboard just speed out everything the engine produces. Yes, right? and it's uh, information right? that we really need to know, not everything. So, you know, you, you touched uh, recently, just, just a moment ago, about uh, working backward. And that's a let's talk more about that. That's a big part of the, the QI approach. And... One of the big points of the book is that this whole approach starts with a decision to be made. It starts with a decision to be made, and then you work backward from it. So you design the marketing, research, data collection, and analysis. And yet, you write that despite its clear appeal, the backward approach is not frequently employed in business decision-making. Can you talk about how like Toyota and Amazon do this with, with the, the five whys and the, and the PR FAQ? Right. Um, yeah. So, so again, the backward approach, the idea is indeed start with a decision, start with a, what do we really need to, to decide? And then back from that through iWeeks and so on, what information do I need in order to to make that decision? And that makes for a much better meeting, if I may add. It, it it does it it it, it avoids the the these situations of Alice in Wonderland of oh let's look at the data and see if there is anything interesting no we have a decision to be made I don't need insights that would not be actionable yeah so uh, we talked before about these five different steps and where leaders find the problem we find that leaders find the biggest problem in defining the problem and actions by working backwards and bringing decisions to the start you just solved both the problem and the action because your your data analysis will be by definition, actionable. You brought the decision to the start. And indeed, uh, um, uh, um, one way to do it is, and we talked before about the the, the value of questions, right? Um, Takashi Toyoda um, 
famously said uh, he was the founder of Toyota, and and uh, he famously said that that you know ask five times why and you'll get you'll get to the heart of the problem. Mm-hmm. We have maybe modified that to say ask five whys and. Uh, you will get to the heart of, of the decision to be made, right? Mm. And, and to give you an example, you know, when someone comes to me and say, oh, this is a, a, a you know, particularly being a marketing professor and, and a marketing a book podcast, let's, I need to, I want to conduct a segmentation study. At that point, I behave like a five-year-old or four-year-old. I ask a sequence of whys. I say, well, why do you want to conduct a segmentation study? And say, I want to know my customers better. So that's great. Um, I mean, that's very important to know your customers better. But why now? I assume you always wanted to know your customers better. Well, I mean, um, our sales are not doing very well recently. You know, so I started getting summers with my why. And then so I continue with my whys. Why do you think that is? Why do you think your sales are hurting? Well, we have a new competitor that entered and they're targeting our target market. So by about my fourth why, we got into a decision. So do we stay with our target market or do we really need to look elsewhere, right? Can we compete with this competitor? Um, it's this sequence of whys that often helps. And and um, you mentioned Amazon. Uh, Amazon works backwards. They pride themselves is working, working backwards. And one of the tools they're using is uh, something called PRFAQ, Press Release Frequently Asked Questions. If you work at Amazon and you have an idea for a product or, by the way, this product could be internal or external um, for, for Amazon, what you would do very early on in the process, you would create a PRFAQ, you would create a document, it's a four-page document, where the first page is a press release. A press release written today saying, we are in February 2025, Amazon does just introduced that tool that you may be search engine, whatever Amazon is working on, and, and describing the product, describing the target market, describing the solution that it solves for the customer. And then the next three pages are extremely important. These are FAQ, frequently asked questions. Questions such as, why should we do it? Questions such as, why shouldn't we do it? Think about how smart that is you ask the champion of the idea to put in writing why this may not be a good idea so that we can think through these issues when we make the decision whether to invest in it. Remember, we're at the start of the process. We're not at the, at the end of the process, right? Mm-hmm. There would be FAQ for finance. How are we going to... Is it profitable? There will be FAQ for engineering. Is it feasible? There will be FAQ maybe for marketing. Is it going to cannibalize products that we already have? Um, big elephants in the room will be often this question. And these questions may change based on a question that come up in, in meetings. Uh, it's a process to work backwards, work from we just introduced the product, pretending as if we did, that's the press release. And then what do we need to know in order to make the decisions decision today, whether to invest in it or, or not? Yes, and this was discussed in an earlier interview with uh, Carmine Gallo, the book, the Bezos Blueprint, Communication Secrets of the World's Greatest Salesman. And he goes into great detail about this and several other things they do at Amazon that are very successful. And I'll include a link to that interview on your episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com. Now, earlier, you talked about torture. And uh, I want to I go back to that torture. You quote the British Nobel Prize-winning economist Ronald Coase, who said, torture the data and it will confess to anything. Which reminded me of a scene from one of the greatest uh, British spy films ever made, where two spies capture an assassin 
who has been sent to kill them. And they start to interrogate the assassin for information. And I want to play a clip from that movie. Who sent you? You'll have to kill me. Who sent you? Kiss my ass, Powers. Who sent you? Dr. Evil. That was easy. That was easy. <laughs> Why did you tell us? I can't stand to be asked the same question three times. It just irritates me. Where is Dr. Evil hiding? Why would he tell me? I'm just one of his low-level functionaries. Where is Dr. Evil hiding? You'll have to torture me. I'll never tell you. Where's Dr. Evil hiding? Damn. Three times. He's hiding in the secret volcano layer. One of the greatest British spy films, Austin Powers, The Spy Who Shagged Me. That was the second Austin Powers film. Yes, for those Austin Powers scholars out there. So you write that there are three important dimensions of data interrogation. And, you know, when I hear uh, interrogation, I think of... So the first is assessing the data and its reliability, and then putting the data in context, and then pressure testing your analysis. Now, <laughs> just because it's data doesn't mean it's reliable, and I think you would, you would agree with that. What are some of the key elements of assessing data and its reliability? Yes, yeah, so... so- I mean, and as as and again, it goes back to questions, asking questions of the data, right? Uh, who collected the data? Is it someone right. with any any intentions, right? With any particular intentions to show you some parts of the data and not other parts of the data? Yes, and Doctor Netzer, let me data? add that uh, reading the book, I think, has made me a a savvier consumer of news because I'm found myself questioning research that reporters are talking about. Yeah, unfortunately, after reading the book, you can never enjoy anything. Uh, um, <laughs> the, uh, I mean, it's it's really the, this. I mean, at the, the heart of interrogation, right? Is questions right. like who, where did the data come from? Which is yep. a great question. Is it is it is it relevant? I mean, if I collected data in in uh, Europe, is it relevant for the US? Mm-hmm. Right? When was the data collected? If the data was collected pre-COVID, is it relevant post-COVID? Right? Uh, so, so all, in the entire, you know, five uh, um, five Ws, right? Which often include include how I think within them <laughs> as well, which is age. But uh, how was the data collected? Was it collected in in a survey or uh, based on secondary data? Is it relevant for us? Uh, this question of who, where, when, how, and why. Um, are often very useful in understanding data reliability and just asking these questions. Uh, but really, the, the the key there is this this contextualizing data is putting data in context. And and again, going back to the myth we were talking about early on, right? This myth that people believe. Oh, I mean, I mean, if I want to interrogate data, I need to go to to these kids who understand this analysis because I don't understand how you analyze the data. Mm-hmm. What I find is that the great greatest interrogators of data are not necessarily those who ask the question three times in a row, but uh, those who have context. So when I build, and I do build some of these, you know, sophisticated machine learning models, when, after I finish building the model and I get some results, I don't go to my data science friend, machine learning expert, to, to ask if what I got is, is right. I go to the domain expert to say, look, these are the forecasts that I got. What do you think about them? Because the, the people who truly have the, 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 the skills to interrogate the data 
other people who have the context would look at the, at, the, at the data point and say, you know what, I don't understand what you've done there. I really don't understand your machine learning tool, but I can tell you that this number is absolutely wrong. There is no way this, this number is right. Think about how often you see these, these great leaders, right, that look at a very complex situation and they hone in on a number that hurt in the stomach, the surprises, what surprised you, right? And they say, I don't know what's, what you've done here, but I can tell you that this, this number is wrong. Um, that's an extremely powerful skill that, that lies within quantitative intuition, but it also should be an enabling one to tell leaders, you, you should be interrogating data, even if you don't understand how the data was created, by simply looking at it and say, does it make sense? Where are the surprises? And it doesn't mean, even mean that, that every surprise is wrong, because there may be a good explanation for it, but it's exactly where we want to spend our time thinking about, right? Yeah. So having context, contextualizing data, putting it in the context of the information you know, is, is extremely important. You write that one aspect of assessing the data and its reliability involves asking the question, what data am I not seeing? Can you talk about the story of uh, Abraham Wald, who was a statistics professor at Columbia, who was consulting for the U.S. Army Air Corps in World War II? Yeah. Um, so, so, yes, in this um, story, um, a very old story, but a um, but true story, dating all the way back to World War II, there were um, – uh, these airplanes uh, um, that, that, that were coming from the U.S. Air Force. The bombers, the, I think. Sorry? Well, they were the bomber, the bombers. The bombers, yeah. yeah. yeah these were the bombers coming out of, of uh, World War II. And the engineers in the, in the Air Force, they were looking at the images of these airplanes and were looking at the, the um, holes from artillery in order to put extra padding in different areas of the airplanes. And what they noticed was that the, 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 the areas with most holes, uh, with the most bullet holes, were the, as the, maybe you could expect, the, the largest area of the airplane, which were the wings and the body of the airplane. And based on that, they, they, they uh, suggested to put extra padding on the wings and the, the body of the airplane. Uh, Abram Wald was a statistician, was actually... Um, here at Columbia University, uh, where I'm uh, currently at, uh, um, was was a professor uh, at Columbia University, but was consulting for the Air Force. And um, he looked at the images and said, well, we should be putting extra padding on the cockpit, the gas tank, and the engines uh, of the airplane. And they were looking at him and say, but how are you saying it? We don't see almost any holes in the cockpit, the gas tank, and, and the engines. And obviously, the, 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 the reason why he said it, he said, well, we have here what is called a survival bias. Mm-hmm. What we are seeing are the airplanes that are coming back, airplanes that got hit in either, tragically, airplanes that got hit in either the uh, cockpit, the, the engine, or the gas tank never made it back. And I think the, the, the key lesson there is always ask yourself, indeed, the question that you mentioned, Douglas, which is, what data am I not seeing? Now, this is an example, by the way, the example I'm, I'm, I'm referring to here is an example of case where there was no ill intention, not showing, obviously, Abram Wald or anyone else, the airplanes that did not come back. When you are in, in business or in policymaking, the data you're not seeing is often because someone did not want to show you that data. So asking this question, you, you never, ever see the, the entire data, even in census, 
there is people who respond to who refuse to respond there is the homeless people the students who don't live at home uh, we call it census but it's never is a census mm-hmm. always ask yourself what data am I not seeing and is the data I'm not seeing different from the data I am seeing maybe to give you two more examples for it there were two horrendous predictions of polls um, again marketeers care a lot about surveys and so on and um, there were two horrendous predictions of polls in 2016 the uh, US election and brexit oh, both yes. of them actually predicted the wrong outcome uh, the polls in the US heavily sh- tilted towards Hillary Clinton winning the polls in 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 the UK tilted towards um, brexit not passing and both were, were wrong and The reason is exactly the, is the same reason of the data we were not seeing. The people who actually refused to answer or did not answer, um, these were very different from those who did answer. And the correction that the pollster were trying to make were inappropriate to correct for the missing response. So keep asking yourself, what data am I not seeing? Why am I not seeing this data? Did someone uh, had a reason maybe to even hide part of the data? Let's go... From analysis to synthesis and synthesis is the transition from analysis to recommendation and action by adding human judgment and putting the analysis in the context of its environment uh, and you're right but synthesis is often easier said than done now to help your readers understand the value of synthesis you provide the following scenario okay now listen carefully folks You have asked your administrative assistant, Sam, to schedule a meeting with three people, Mrs. Johnson, Mr. Davis, and Mrs. Schwartz. Six hours later, you receive the following email from Sam, which I have put into the uh, following audio clip so everyone can hear it. Mrs. Johnson called. She said that she can't make it to the meeting on Tuesday at 3 p.m. Any other time this week would be better. Mr. Davis said he doesn't mind moving the meeting either, maybe to Wednesday or Thursday, but not before 10.30 a.m. and Mrs. Schwartz's assistant said his boss won't be back from London until late Wednesday evening. The conference room is already booked for tomorrow, but it's available on Thursday from 11 a.m. What do you think? Okay, I can play that again if, if necessary, but you then write, or I guess the listener can, can rewind it if they want to hear it again. You then write, Now consider an alternative and a clearly better scenario in which using exactly the same information, Sam composes a different email. We should reschedule the Tuesday meeting for Thursday at 11 a.m. Mrs. Johnson can't make the original time and Mr. Davis and Mrs. Schwartz would also be able to attend. Okay, so explain the difference between those two scenarios as it relates to synthesis. Yeah. So again, I mean, the question of which one we prefer is, is, is um, clearly un- unnecessary here. <laughs> And I truly, truly hope for everybody that they do have administrative assistant too. Um, but really the difference between these two scenarios are uh, the difference between synth- summary and synth- synthesis. Mm-hmm. Summary is restatement of the facts, is, is telling us what happened. In fact, in this case, a... Uh, um, The, the assistant provides a full list of everything that happened almost chronologically and eventually ends with what do you think mm-hmm. the second scenario is not only much shorter which is great right but also starts with 
the action. The meeting is going to happen at 11 a.m. on Thursday, right? And making your your bottom line your top line. Yes. And then providing the information and only the information needed in order to explain to us why the decision was made. That's the difference between summary, simply restating the facts, telling us the what, to starting with the so what and even the now what, meaning what are we going to do, and then I'm going to tell you only what you need to know. Um, I think an important question to ask is, given that we, again, I would assume that all of us would want to have administrative assistant too, and hopefully we are communicating that um, in, in this way or the other, why do we still see often and arguably even more often administrative assistant one than two? Right. Why do people uh, who deliver information of any kind summarize rather than synthesize? So there, there are several reasons for it. Uh, um, the first reason is, you know, the famous quote attributed to Mark Twain, if I had time, I would have written a shorter letter. Yes, uh, yes. It, it does take more time to mm-hmm. actually write the shorter one because she had to pour in judgment, decide when the meeting going to happen, and then write a short uh, description of it. The second is, it took her two hours to schedule this damn meeting. If if all she does is tell me this one sentence, how would I know how hard it was? The first version, the longer version, does uh, uh, deliver the fact that this was very difficult to actually schedule this meeting, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and the third one, and maybe the, the biggest reason why we don't see it enough, is that it takes risk by Judgment is never certain. Data are certain. Data, as long as as the data is true and you are restating the facts, you can be wrong. The only reason how you'll be wrong is if the data are wrong, and then you can always blame it on the data. If you pour in judgment, there is a chance I say, oh, I forgot to tell you, I have actually a meeting at 11. Um, I have a, d- a dentist appointment that wasn't on my calendar. And, and if you take it to to more business decisions, you can see that the risk can be easily become much higher. So pouring judgment is uncertain and people feel uncomfortable with this uncertainty, with pouring in the judgment. People feel so much more comfortable with simply restating the facts, with simply restating the what's in the data. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we should push people to move from what, what in the data, to the so what, what does it mean? And now what? What are we going to do about it? Now we can't always push maybe push maybe junior employees to to uh, to go all the way to the know what to the now what? What are we going to do about it? But at least to the so what. Don't just tell me what's in the data. I can see. I can look at the table and and see what's in the table. Tell me what do you think is going on, right? And and we should be asking it, demanding it, open the opportunity for mistakes because if you're interpreting something, you're you you can be wrong, um. Uh, we need to. One of the the tricks that I've found to allow people to synthesize is ask people not for one, but possibly two possible syntheses that are uh, consistent with the data. That way, you're not exactly right or wrong. Meaning, at least one of them is likely to be ra- to be wrong. And um, open a bit the aperture towards what do you think is going on? Don't just, don't just come and tell me the facts. But you're also saying, I want some synthesis, which I think is very important uh, culturally. And are there any tricks you've seen work where this idea of what, so what, and now what is worked into an organization that's uh, people that are delivering information? Yes. uh, um, You know, I mean, there there is a persona we talk about in the book. We call them the Seymours of the organization. (laughs) Yeah, that was great. The Seymours 
Yeah, these are the people who in every meeting have only one comment, right? I want to see more data. Yes, I love that section where you were describing all these different people, and I thought, you know what? I've been in meetings with every one of those people, but it's helpful to prepare for them. And we've all, we've all seen the Seymours, right? We can postpone any decision indefinitely by searching for more and more and more data, right? <laughs> and, and really, our goal should be to move from the what, from seeing what's in the data, towards what does it mean, what are we going to do about it? Um, one trick that I use, it's maybe as simple as um, I actually put sometimes a, an alarm on my, on my, um, on my phone, on my, on my watch, in, a, in an hour meeting, into 45 minutes into the, the meeting, and I say, okay, we spent 45 minutes talking about the what. I know that you have a lot of questions. Our analysts are going to look at your questions and going to look for more data, but let's make sure we spend the last 15 minutes of this meeting discussing what does it mean and what are we going to do about it. Despite our disagreements about the data and its accuracy, what does it mean and what are we going to do about it? Another approach is uh, sometimes put the data in a repository or in a, in a in a, in a place where everybody can see before the meeting, say, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. comment on anything you want before the meeting. Look at the data, comment on anything you want before the meeting. We will dedicate the meeting towards discussing your comments. And that way we are pushing the meeting from the what, which hopefully happened pre-meeting as people are, are writing their questions about the data, towards so what and now what during the meeting. Spending more of the meeting time at the um so what and now what? And again, going back to, to where we started, where we mentioned we want better meetings. I want meetings about so what and now what and way fewer meetings about what, which leads to yet another meeting about what, which leads to yet another meeting about yes. we disagree about the data. Oh. Let's get more data. Oh, it makes my hair hurt. Well, I appreciate the fact that your alarm has not gone off yet because you've been very generous with your time. And there's lots more we could talk about, but we're really uh, running out of time. But let me ask one last question from the book before we wrap up. And that is uh, to explain why you urge readers to seek consent, not consensus. Because decisions go over decimals, right? I mean, we have eventually to make decisions, and decisions are best made, particularly with it's eventually decision making is a team sport. It's not something that one does alone. And the way to 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 play this team sport is seeking consent, seeking situations where people are agreeable with the direction we are heading. We don't need everyone to champion the idea. We need one or two people to champion the decisions and the decision and the rest to 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 agree to go go with that decision. And and the more you convince people with the data that it shows that it's that, that that's the direction, the more you are likely to get this consent of of this is the right direction to go. Right, and that requires a certain amount of leadership and uh, communication skills, but it almost seems to me like consensus is sort of like a perfect data-driven decision. They're both mirages. Exactly. It's exactly the, the certainty myth, right? Consensus <laughs> myth, it could be the third myth maybe um, in the book. Maybe we'll, we'll edit in the next version, right? Uh, the consensus myth, yeah, I yes. agree. Yes, that's great. That's great. Well, Dr. Netzer, if readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would be? Ask questions. Focus mm. on on questions, questions like what surprised you, questions like what what is it that you wish you knew. Again, go back to, to four-year-old, right? Unleash this our ability to ask questions, to feel comfortable with asking your questions. At home, we are very comfortable with asking ourselves what surprised you, right? This is mm-hmm. what we call gossip. 
<laughs> use it at work, right? Ask yourself what surprised me here as well. Oh, that's great. What is one thing a listener could do today that we've talked about just to put in action just one of the ideas from your book to get them uh, thinking about this? Again, I'll go back to the surprises. Mm-hmm. Seek these surprises. Um, go into a meeting and, and, and ask yourself, is there anything surprising in that meeting? And, and surface it, not just keep it for yourself, but surface it. Surface these surprises, avoid the, these uh, hiding outliers. Look for the cases where, where the quantitative and the intuition, where the information and the intuition do not match. Yes, oh, that's great. Also seems like a great thing to add into that pre-meeting uh, document. You know, I want everyone to bring at least one thing that surprises you about this data. I don't know if that's a good yeah, idea or not, agree. but it, it would really agree. force them Fully to look. Agree. Yeah. Oh, great. So looking back, what books have most inspired your work and career? Yeah, I mean, book, I mean, again, dealing with data-driven decision-making, books like Moneyball, um both the book and, and, and later the movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is a great book by Seth Davidovich uh, called Everybody Lies, where he, he um, talks about how the query within Google, the, this uh, empty query within Google is one of the most um, intimate things in our life in, in terms of what we share with it and how honest we are actually in the things we're actually searching for. And if one learns at the aggregate, not, not necessarily at the individual level, but at the aggregate, look at, at what people are searching for, we can actually learn a lot about society. Um, it's a great source of data. There is a, a, a free tool by Google Trends, by Google called Google Trends, mm-hmm. where you can see what people are searching for at the aggregate, again, not any any particular individual. And he claims and shows how honest this is because of how honest we are when we are entering things into this this Google query, when we are wishing to find something. It's almost a, a window I- into people's wishes. Uh, a, a book called um, Everybody Lies uh, is another example of a great book that, that had an impact on me. Yes, I've heard about this. Everybody Lies, Big Data, New Data, and What the Internet Can Tell Us About Who We Really Are by Seth Stevens Davidowitz. Oh, wow. Interesting. I will make sure to include a link to that uh, book. On- could, could be another great guest in your, in your show. As oh, well. yeah. Well, do you know the author? I do know the author. I'm oh. happy to make the introduction. Oh, wow. Are there any recent or upcoming books that you recommend or are looking forward to reading? Yeah, there is a, a, a great book by a... Um, a colleague at, at, at Wharton, um, um, Jonah Berger, uh, who wrote recently a book uh, called um, um, Magic Words, uh, where he talks about uh, what can we learn from language, from the way people speak, the way people write. I've been doing my own, uh, in my more of academic hat here at Columbia Business School, a lot of my research is around um, text mining and analyzing uh, language. And he wrote a very nice book around... Uh, language just recently came out uh, and what can we learn from the way people speak, from the writing style that they use, whether they use things like I or we when they speak, um, whether you use different pronouns. Um, this is a, 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 a recent book that I've written that I think is, is um, very very well written and lots of interesting insights. Yes, I couldn't agree more. I had the honor of being able to interview him about that book on a recent episode the book is Magic Words. That was actually the third time he's been on. I also interviewed him about Catalyst and Invisible Influence. <laughs> he's been very generous with, with his uh, time, uh, as he, have he you. He's great. Yeah. Oh, he's one of those authors where 
and I don't know if this exists, but you're an Amazon scholar. Maybe you could work on this. If I could just say, look, there's about five or 10 authors where whatever they write, just go ahead and send me the book and build my account. <laughs> He's one yeah. of them. Whereas it's a very good bet that it's going to be uh, an exceptional book. Well, at marketingbookpodcast.com, we'll include links to everything linkable, including all the books that have been mentioned to the book's website, your LinkedIn profile, and so forth. And now a word to you, dear listeners. I want to ask you a big favor. Please reach out in some way to Dr. Netzer and congratulate him on the book. Thank him for being a guest on the Marketing Book Podcasts. Uh, guests on the show have told me that they really enjoy hearing from Marketing Book Podcast listeners, particularly when they have questions for the author. And if you're listening on your smartphone and you've subscribed to the Marketing Book Podcast on your favorite podcast app like Apple Podcasts, all these links can be found by going to this episode right now and clicking on this episode's website link. The book is Decisions Over Decimals, Striking the Balance Between Intuition and Information. The authors are Christopher Frank, Paul Magnoni, and Oded Netzer. Dr. Netzer, thank you very much for joining us on the Marketing Book Podcast. Thank you, Douglas. Thank you for having me on the Marketing Book Podcast, and thank you for the listeners. I do look forward to interacting with you. Feel free to connect on LinkedIn to ask any questions. Happy to answer questions and, and interact with the listeners. And that closes the book on another episode of the Marketing Book Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it and found it helpful. If you are one of the hundreds of listeners who have left an iTunes review, please let me return your kind favor by mailing you some Marketing Book Podcast bookmarks and laptop stickers. Just send me your mailing address anywhere in the world and I'll drop it in the mail. And remember the words of the entrepreneur, author, and motivational speaker Jim Rohn, who said, Formal education will make you a living. Self-education will make you a fortune. <laughs>